Hello STEM lovers, science dabblers and everyone who just forgot to turn over after the last show. Welcome to Us and STEM with me, Ellie Bladen on CAMFM. Each week I chat to a new guest scientist, put them under the microscope to dissect their work, investigate their life in science and examine what makes them tick. Today we'll be asking, how difficult is it being a baby Tasmanian devil? What's wrong with the way we talk about Australian mammals? What harmful biases are hidden in plain sight in museums around the world? And how do you get a foot in the door in a competitive industry of museum management? This week's guest is Jack Ashby, the Assistant Director of the Museum of Zoology at the University of Cambridge. Alongside and integrated into his career in museum management are his research interests in the natural history of Australia, and particularly its mammals. If you don't follow him on Twitter yet, you definitely need to because you're currently missing out on the joy of his Wombat Wednesday updates. He's also the author of the widely acclaimed book Animal Kingdom A Natural History in 100 Objects, and he has another book coming out soon about Australian mammals and why they matter. Jack undertakes a massive amount of public engagement work, focusing on, of course, Australian mammals, but also the role of museums in the modern world, as well as the history of natural collections and the need to decolonise exhibits. You'll hear that the audio quality this week is a little bit patchy. We were having some problems with Jack's microphone, but that's just the excitement of making a podcast in a pandemic when we can't be in the same place. Hi, Jack. It's so great to have you on the show. Where are you talking to me from today? I am talking to you from just the edge of North London. Okay, okay. so not too far. One of my closer guests. So I'm really excited to find out how you got to where you are now. I think I'm right in saying that your undergrad degree was in zoology. But at what point did you decide that you wanted to go into a career in museums? So I studied zoology at Cambridge. And actually, it was in... I can remember it quite clearly when I wanted to start working in museums. I was sat in the Museum of Zoology where I now work, which is nice. In my third year, we had practicals in the museum as we continue to do today. And I was sat there on my own of an evening. And I just kind of a bit of an epiphany hit me. Hey, I could I could do this for a living. Could you, and it was specifically, um, I wanted to work in, in education and learning in museums. So, yeah, that would be a thing to do, having had, had no, absolutely no idea until that point. Um, what I might do. And what was the museum like back then compared to now in terms of like that outreach work? So the Museum of Zoology in Cambridge back then, since this, I was there, I arrived in 2000. It hadn't been done up since the 60s, since it was built, um, more or less. Like some of the, yeah, most of these it's dated back then, but there weren't really any outreach staff. There were collection staff and the academic curators, but there wasn't any kind of any public facing staff at all. You could just wander in off the street during a couple, I think the public had a couple of hours a week when they could come in. And um, yeah, there, there was there was nothing there was nothing. It's not it wasn't what the museum was for <laughs> back then. So when you were an undergrad, did you do any kind of outreach work or was that less spoken about? No at all. No, we we really didn't. There was that was I think in my experience in the last my career that kind of pushing students to think about public audiences in their work is is a pretty new thing in at least in life sciences that I've worked in so it's um yeah it, it wasn't it wasn't a factor you know we had to give presentations to our classmates but not not with a kind of public idea it was very academic that's really interesting and and now because the museum does so much outreach you know I'm curious to know when 
we live in a world that's so connected. People can just go and see animals in the wild, maybe, maybe in a zoo. What do you think is the benefit of still having museums for outreach? Oh, many things. I mean, it's quite hard just to go and see an animal. You know, there's, there's a lot of barriers. It's obviously, you can't, it's most, most people can't afford to travel the world and see them, and zoos are expensive. But even that, you know, there's a lot, even, you know, even if you can, there's a lot of things you can get from a museum specimen that's very different to a live animal. You know, there's kind of an encounter with a live animal that's on its terms, unless it's in a zoo. Um, whereas, you know, it can be, it can, it's extraordinarily exciting, fleet, but fleeting generally. Whereas in a museum, it's at your own pace. Um, you can look at, you can answer very, very different questions, I think, by looking at a specimen. But just for, you know, the public, it's, where else can you go and see all of those things and get a sense of their scale, a sense of their shape and, and size, you know, to stand under an elephant skeleton? I'm like, wow, that's pretty big. Get much closer in a museum than you can in real life. I think they're, yeah, they're, they tell, they tell very, very different stories to what a live animal encounter does. And we're sort of talking about the public facing stuff, but in terms of what goes on behind the scenes, why are museums still important for science? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the University Museum of Zoology and Chemistry have about 2 million specimens, of which, I don't know, 7,000 maybe are on display. So our collections are used constantly in answering the, the biggest questions the planet's facing. So answering questions about what are the effects of, of climate change and how is, how is biodiversity loss being mapped across the globe and why? Museums are, are really the best data set the world has for answering those questions. We've got 200 years plus our paleontological collections going back you know, half a million years to say what has changed over the course of recent history or longer history and why is that? And that helps us work out how, how things are going to change in the future depending on what you know, do with it. On top of that, we can answer other questions like, you know, how does how has the world evolved? Like, what, how has species evolved? How are they related to each other? How does natural history work? How does how does nature work? And you kind of need both the pillars of studying live animals in the field and animal specimens in museums and labs to really understand how it all fits together. So you're painting a picture of a museum career which can actually have a, a massive impact on the face of science. So if someone wants to get into a museum career. I think that the way that it looks to me is it's incredibly competitive to actually get a job in it. I guess there are there are a lot of people who are enthusiastic and not necessarily enough jobs to match that. And one thing that I've heard my students worry about is when someone like you talks and, and writes, it's very clear that you have a great knowledge of natural history in general. Do people considering a career in, in museums have to start with that really broad, intense knowledge of, of natural history or does it kind of come along the way? Oh, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest. Like, so for, for me, knowing facts about natural history or how you know, biological processes work helps me in a lot of aspects of my job. But there are certainly a lot of people in the sector who are absolutely excellent at their jobs who don't have that. But I think the jobs are often shaped around the people that are in them, obviously. So for me, it happens that a lot of you know, my job, I'm assistant director, so my job works across most of the aspects of the museum. So across collections care, across visitor experience, and um, work with the public engagement team too, and on our exhibitions. So me knowing about natural history obviously helps in most of those situations. But if I didn't know about natural history, I'm sure I'd approach it in a different way, but that doesn't necessarily mean a less successful way, no, a less effective way. Um, 
And I think, yeah, there are certainly people in natural history museums who aren't, in management at least, who aren't natural historians. And certainly, well, in, in, in all spheres, in all parts of the sector, people come in different ways. But And it's not all about the training you've done, you know, formally. I'm sure I've learned more about the natural world from working in museums than I did studying zoology. So did you go straight from your undergrad into a museum job? My first job, well, my first proper job was in the Science Centre in, in Bristol. It was called at Bristol, then now it's called We the Curious. Um, I know that. Well, that's that's a very <laughs> exciting place. Yeah, it was cool. So back then, so 2003, it was new Millennium Science Centre. And yeah, it was, it's a lot of people that are now in public engagement, science communication across museums that kind of have gone through that step in their careers. So and my job was very broad to start with. I was front of house as an explainer. I also worked occasionally in the shop and the ticket desk and even in the IMAX cinema. And then I moved, after a few months, moved into a learning team to, to do more like uh, live events and school groups. And I was there for a year. And then after that, I moved to my first museum job at the Grant Museum of Zoology at UCL. So you're assistant director, but you do still do a fair amount of public facing work. Is that by your choice or is museum work like that where you'll do a mixture of things? It certainly is by my choice. I think it's, it's I think my job description was originally open to interpretation in that regard. But I think, yeah, because I really, it's, it's my, my background, as I say, is in, was in learning. So I was a learning manager for a long time before I was a museum manager. So that is definitely something that really, really interests me. So I, it's hard to answer whether that is what the job comes with or that's just what I do with the job. And if someone was trying to start off in a career if they looked at your job and went yeah that's where I want to be in you know however many years time what is a good way to get your foot in the door do you have to do unpaid work is there a way to get your first job without that experience it's really hard so I I consider myself extremely lucky because I didn't volunteer and I think it I think it is a fundamental problem with the museum sector that the vast majority of people that do have careers in museums have done a huge amount of unpaid work which is one of the reasons why a museum sector has a diversity problem because many people can't afford to. Most people can't and should not be expected to, to work for free for a very long time. So unfortunately, it is the case that, that most people do end up volunteering. But there are other ways. There are, you know, there are some museums offer internships and apprenticeships and other, and other schemes. And people can work and study at the same time, which is obviously also really difficult. But if you if you are, you know... You have the opportunity to take whatever opportunities you can if you're in an environment, studying in an environment where there are museums nearby, then maybe an opportunity to, to spend a bit volunteering or to do it, to take a museum project part of your studies. Um, it all helps. But it's, it's tricky because there's no, there's no kind of, oh, yeah, there's no easy answer that you know, museums are competitive and, you know, they're not very well paid. And <laughs> that is the cold reality. And, yeah, most jobs have perhaps a couple of hundred applicants, even at the early kind of step foot in the door. And so I'm afraid I don't have an easy answer to that. I wish that museums didn't expect people to volunteer so much. And for me, we can, the things that we can do about it are to kind of ask what is a reasonable expectation. So why do museums require museum studies degrees? I think that is wrong. We shouldn't be expecting people at the beginning of their careers to need to know that much. Um, so is that a, a postgrad degree that some places expect? Yeah, so a number of museums have a requirement for a postgraduate degree in museum studies or similar. It's outrageous. 
Yeah. It's difficult, yeah. isn't it? Because, I mean, masters are notoriously expensive. Yeah, it's another reason why museums such as a diverse problem. Because if you expect people to spend £12,000 before they can even get their first minimum wage job, like, pretty absurd. And for what reason? And um, what, you know, there's, that's not necessarily the best way to learn about how museums work. And which, why do you need to know that for, you know, your first ever documentation job, your first ever front of house, first ever of engagement job? I don't think it's reasonable. And because it's such a competitive industry, once you actually do get into the industry, is there a kind of supportive community feel or do you feel that competition once you're in there? I don't think there is a competitive feel. Like, it's, it is a very supportive community. It's certainly in, in the natural, natural history sector. So we have our professional network, Natural Sciences Collections Association, and that is a wonderful community. Like, people are extremely supportive. I don't... Yeah, like there's institutional competition, but it's friendly. It's very friendly, you know, like no one would ever want to take a visitor from one museum to another. It's all additive. Like, yeah. It's not like, I don't, I don't know anyone who pictures the museum world like that. It's, yeah, we want to be good at what we're doing and be seen to be good at what we're doing, but there's no, there's no bad sportsmanship or anything like that. It's, yeah, it's very supportive. Like the network is wonderful. That's, that's good to hear because, you know, sometimes competitive industries can build that kind of slightly cutthroat feel. So it's nice to hear that that's not going on behind the scenes. <laughs> not, I've not had any experience of that. So anyone who's read your work or heard your talks will know that you have a big passion for Australian mammals. Where did that originate? Again, I can tie that kind of significant part of my life back to the museum I currently work in, which is rather lovely. That those undergraduate classes, my lecturer at the time, Adrian Friday, who was our um, creator of vertebrates at the time, and he's, he's still part of the community as emeritus. He kind of instilled my passion initially for platypuses, and like those those working with the specimens that I now work with again, and just like him talking about them and explaining how amazing Australian mammals are. That's where it all started. And then from there, I kind of, well, I thought, yeah, I have to get myself to Australia and see these animals. So I kind of just first went as a holiday. It was just just chasing animals around. But now I spend a month or two there a year, or I would spend a month or two there a year if I was allowed out of the country at the moment. Yeah, has COVID messed up your fieldwork plans? Unfortunately, yeah. I was due to be doing Tasmanian devil fieldwork last year and platypus fieldwork last year. Just didn't happen now. Yeah, it looks like no no one's going to be allowed into Australia in 2021 either. So that's unfortunate. And how do you actually manage to balance your full time job with your mammal field work? Um, I've been quite clever with it. I'd say. I so I do. I what I do is or how I initially did it was was saying, hey, I'm a zoologist, but I work for free for environmental NGOs in and universities in Australia. So I thought of places that I wanted to work or animals I wanted to work with and contact the people that work with, with them and did it in my annual leave, basically. Uh, I have taken some unpaid leave to do it initially, took five months off and set myself up in there. But it's, yeah, now I, I go for a month or so a year just in annual leave and don't do much else, obviously, <laughs> other than go to Australia. Yeah, and and now, you know, you, as a, a zoologist, with specialism in Australian ecology, I'm able to join these expeditions from, from the universities and, and the NGOs. Where you know, and it's good for me because I can catch the animals, collect the data, and then just hand the data over. So I don't I don't have to do any of the 
the difficult computational science that my colleagues over there end up doing. That's very smart. It would be wonderful, but I couldn't fit that into my job. Yeah. And plus, you get to do the sort of exciting on the ground part without having to, you know, sit behind a desk (laughs) all the time. So that sounds great. Yeah, exactly. So for anyone who doesn't have much familiarity in the fauna of Australia, what is so exciting about them? It's the only place, Australia and New Guinea, the only place in the world where you can find all three kinds of ways of being a mammal. So you can find placental mammals like us, you can find marsupials, and you find egg-laying mammals like platypuses and echidnas. That's, I think, one of the things about Australia, but also it is mega diverse. You can travel 100 kilometres and find a completely different ecosystem, completely different suite of animals. Yeah, they're amazing. And they're like an underdog. People write off Australian mammals, and they shouldn't, but they're they're pretty special. Mm -hmm. So can you give me your favourite Australian mammal fact? Gosh, um, probably can't, but... (laughs) Uh, that will change. I'm sure that that answers that question every changes every day. But uh, Tasmanian devils are incredible. Just the, the way marsupials reproduce generally is incredible, in that they give birth after just a couple of weeks of gestation to an absolutely miniature little grain of rice or a jelly bean. So Tasmanian devils give birth to about twenty or so tiny grains of rice. They weigh a, you know, a fifth of a gram each just after three weeks uh, gestation, three weeks in the womb, and that that grain of rice tiny little creature can has really well-developed arms and really well-developed lips and is able to climb almost entirely unaided uh, from the vaginas into the pouch and attach itself to its mother's teeth. Well, then it will spend the next four months or so permanently feeding in the, in the pouch, but they've only got four teeth. So they give birth to 20, but only four maximum of four will make it so we catch devils very often with fewer than four babies so it's just so which just goes to show how difficult that journey is that of the 20 or even more 30 sometimes sometimes fewer than four actually make the journey but the fact that any of them can do it from this you know literally they look like a pink grain of rice uh, with arms is incredible that's absolutely insane i did not realize there was that much of a difference between the teats and the number of offspring that's crazy do you know why why is that a life history trait well, so it's quite common in the carnivorous marsupials, so um, devils and quolls and darts and antichinuses. Um, but I think the, the, the answer is that that journey is difficult. So it's an odds game. Like, so average adult female devil weighs about seven kilos. So 25th of a gram babies that is a, not a very significant investment, to, if that doesn't sound too callous. And because, as I say, we don't find, don't always find a full pouch and always find four babies in there, which does suggest although obviously they can die after they've arrived. They don't even make a full complement every time. So it's just it's just an odds game. And that minimum investment to start with, and then obviously they, as they spend more time in the pouch, drink more milk, become more of a hindrance, they become more of an investment for the mother. But in that initial stage, it's, it's, a very, it's not a very um, expensive experiment. Gosh, that is absolutely crazy. Like I didn't I didn't realise so many would drop off before actually getting to the pouch and I didn't realise the difference was that high. That's a very good Australian mammal fact. I'll even if even if you think of another one, I'll definitely take that one. <laughs> the kangaroos just they're relatives, they just give birth to one. They're not all they're not all marsupials do And are the kangaroo pinkies bigger then? Just a little bit. So it's only like five weeks gestation, they might weigh this they might be this literally the size of a jelly bean. So about you know, maybe a gram or so. Uh, Absolutely. And they also have to climb. They obviously have to climb a lot further because kangaroos are bigger than devils. So it's the same setup. 
It's just a, I was gonna say dog eat dog world, but dog is probably the wrong term to use in Australia, <laughs> isn't it? But yeah, that's wow. I'm I'm just amazed. I can see how you get hooked on this kind of thing quite quickly because especially if you're able to actually go out and do field work, you can really get into the subject more than just reading it in books. And I know you've spoken before about how there is a bias in the way that Australian mammals are presented in museums. So what do you mean by that? So it's my assertion that naturalist museums and, you know, the, the world at large, so natural history documentaries, newspaper articles, TV, whatever, they're very fond of Australian mammals, but people are, you know, people are enthusiastic about them, but they do tend to write them off as just odd little curios or, um, you know, being called weird, strange, bizarre is the norm for Australian mammals. And I think, personally, I think that's kind of, there's a, there's a colonial bias, subconscious colonial bias behind that, and that just writing off Australia as, as a, just a kind of evolutionary backwater, often called primitive, which doesn't make any biological sense. Uh, no complex species can be, that's alive can be primitive. And uh, yeah, that, that's, I think we are predisposed, even in Australia itself, to kind of, just consider them as little entities, which I think fundamentally devalues them and has had an impact on their conservation and extinction. That's really interesting because, I mean, I was doing the same thing then. I was just going, that's absolutely crazy. And it's something that we do so naturally, isn't it? I guess because it's part of the culture around it. And in museums in general, you've also spoken about the biases that we see, but potentially a lot of casual visitors aren't aware of. So what are some of those biases in general that if you were a visitor to a museum, you might not notice? Yes, I mean, it's, I really like this subject because natural history museums, kind of their aim in generally speaking is to kind of inspire passion and interest in the natural world and today you know, to care for it. And it's very easy to assume that natural history museums provide a, kind of a relatively un um, filtered window onto the natural world, uh, but but obviously natural museums are built by people for people, and that means that there are any number of biases that we can spot that shows that museums aren't a very accurate reflection of what things are really going on in nature. So the most obvious one, I mean, the most the most obvious one is just the size of the animals. You know, you walk into any natural museum, you walk into to our natural museum in Cambridge, first thing you see in. Uh, the whale hall is a whale. You walk into the Natural Museum in London, first thing you see is a whale. You know, whales are, <laughs> are amazing. Like they are the biggest animals I've ever lived. We definitely need to continue displaying whales. I'm not saying that, but you know, most animals, 95% of animals, are smaller than a human thumb. But how much space are they actually given in natural museums? We we do not accurately display the kind of the size range of animals in any proportion, and very much linked to that is the taxonomic bias. So, you know of the one and a half million species so I described, around, let's say, 900,000 or 1.2 million, depending on who you believe, uh, are insects, or, or a wider, I think it's 900,000, you know, insects, one point, you probably know better, um, 1.2 million are arthropods, so the you know, insects plus crustaceans and arachnids, and only 6,000 are mammals. So when we go into a museum, we see so many mammals, and as a mammal person, you know, I'm fine with that. But um, the insects are getting, a, a, the insects is where the real global diversity is. And museums don't, museum displays don't reflect that. And there are obvious reasons, you know, it's, it is hard to display so many kinds of ant or so many kinds of beetle, so many kinds of fly. I know my colleagues would disagree, but it, it, you, if museums are in the business of, of kind of awe and wonder, um, and it is easier to do that with a whale or a dinosaur or a tiger than it is to do with a flea. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean 
that we shouldn't try harder. So size and taxonomy are two. We're kind of the most the people the one that raises people's eyebrows the most is, is sex. So there are far more males, both in natural history museum collections and natural history museum displays. So mm-hmm. particularly birds and, and mammals on display are, are far, far more males than there are females. And there are, I mean, there are a couple of biological reasons from that, in that males in a number of groups tend to be easier to track than females, partly because often they have larger territories mm-hmm. and can be more aggressive in some species, but not certainly not in all. Um, but there's also a human bias in the sense of particularly birds and mammals, where if there is a difference between the sexes, it's, off, it's most often the mammals that are either, sorry, the males that are either um, more flamboyant in their coloration, you think of birds, peacocks versus peahens, you know, et cetera, most of the pheasants. Plus, they're kind of weaponry. So if a hunter is going to go out and try and collect a, an animal that they're going to be able to sell to a museum, they're going to be able to sell a massive stag with its huge antlers or horns or tusks. They're going to sell it more easily than the female. But equally, there's the element of, you know, the Victorian hunter trying to overcome a, as be seen to overcome the epic manliness of shooting something massive compared to something without weapons is, I assume, another way, reason where that bias has come in. But that's kind of, that's a, the collection bias. The display bias is kind of worse. But the way that male and female animals are displayed is often different. This is down to a colleague of mine, Rebecca Machen, who's now at Leeds, she's done the research into this. She found that when males and females are displayed together, then often the females are kind of in a submissive pose, kind of cowering below the male who is domineering over her, which in most cases has absolutely nothing to do with the natural history of the animals. But they're not displaying real behaviours. They're displaying the biases of the usually male taxidermists who've created these specimens. That's worth keeping an eye out for, particularly in bird displays. It's quite easy to spot these kind of bowing females underneath the males, which is, yeah, obviously bad. And then finally, the other one is geographic bias. So, for example, in Britain, our collections are far more representative of the former uh, British Empire and former colonies um, than they are of, say, China or Russia, where, where we don't have a colonial history. And that's, you know, that's interesting, again, because... There's obviously the whole story about the colonial history of museums, but also just in how representative museums are of global diversity. It's very skewed to Australia, India, and parts of Africa. And in terms of the scientific output, I can see how that's, you know, very obviously problematic because, you know, we're not getting a, a proper breadth of the globe when we're studying museum populations, potentially. In terms of how visitors view that, do you think that's harmful or do you think it's just something which is life? Well, so Rebecca Machen, again, answered that question very well, where she studied atypical museum and looked at what was written about the specimens in the labels, in the, in the public labels, and found that if a male had a label, it was far more likely to be a kind of general natural history. So this is where the animal lives, what it eats, how it's adapted to its habitat, general natural history. If it was a female specimen on display, the label would say, this is how the animal reproduces, which obviously female also has to eat and defend herself and move through her is equally as well adapted but the label she gets is about mothering and very easily to imagine how that would have an impact on you know say a 10 year old visitor walking through gets a subconscious message that you know females are just for reproduction and that that's a very different bias to the kind of victorian taxidermist mounting a specimen in male and female uh, subordinate dominant pose. That is someone in our lifetime, perhaps in the last decade, 
probably a woman, considering the bias in Natural History Museum uh, gender splits, has written that label recently. That's really interesting because it, because it shows that, I mean, I'm sure the person writing that isn't sexist. It's just that exactly. it's, we're so used to working like that. And you were just speaking about the colonial history of museums and you've you know, given talks written about decolonizing museums. What does that actually mean? It means a lot of things, but I think decolonization is basically about breaking down systemic hierarchies in the way that different narratives are presented. So it's essentially saying, in many of our institutions, including museums, a European, typically white male narrative has been elevated above anything else. And decolonization is about trying to restore some of that balance, which, which can involve, for example, just being honest about the, the, where the collections came from. It's one of the biggest, one of the questions we've always got I think, through, through time. Where did you get all this stuff? And museums often haven't said you know, there were these colonial missions that did this. There was, some of them were collected by soldiers uh, who were in the act of invading. We were, we, I say, we, you know, the, the colonial machine, the British Empire was trying to work out to some extent what resources it could exploit in territories it's colonised, be they animal, vegetable and mineral. And those things are now in our naturalist mediums. So there's one thing to being honest about that story. There's also the kind of trying to dispel the myth, which... All of our institutions have, have created that. Most of the history of science has been done by white men. You know, it's that sure we can we can say you know people like Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, massive accomplishments. And then we don't need to take away their accomplishments. But they didn't work alone. And the indigenous collectors or people in other countries, people of color and women who were collecting with them, have not been given their kind of recognition for what they did. And I think that's really important because. By you know, correctly telling the stories, more accurately telling the stories of who contributed to how these discoveries were made and how collections were put together. The more people that we can represent in those stories, the more people are going to be able to come to the museum and see themselves represented and see people like them made a major contribution to the history of science, history of just the museum, the history of society. I think that's you know, it's pretty inarguable that that's a worthwhile thing to do. And you give lectures to undergrads at Cambridge about this kind of thing. And it's really cool, actually, because, you know, some of my students, I've seen the way they react to this. It's something that's completely new to them, but also they are really interested. Do you find that generally talking about this to people, you get positive feedback or have you had any pushback either from the public or from other museum professionals? Um, generally, certainly generally very positive. I think it's, it is for, you know, those students, it, we're, you know, it's easy to think that natural history museums are any, uh, well, museums are, are among, museum professionals are among the most trusted professionals in, in the world. So it's, it's easy to think natural history museums are scientific when obviously they are human built places. So I think just those, the, the scales falling from people's eyes, it's, it's, it's people are interested because they just never thought about it before. So yeah, certainly when I talk about it, there hasn't been any pushback. When I've written about it, you know, I've had... Uh, some choice Daily Mail articles written about something I'd written about museum bias, um, particularly the kind of the gender, bi the sex bias in museums and the gender representation bias in museums, which they took exception to. And, you know, most, I think the, the main fear that any, that you get from professionals or academics is that decolonization is about repatriation. And that's certainly a part of it. It hasn't been a big part of it in natural history. I'm sure it will be one day, but Decolonization isn't about breaking down your institution 
or you know tearing it apart it's, it's an additive process it's saying more people contribute to this it's, it's it is a positive thing it isn't a hand-wringing exercise in you know haven't we got a terrible history and alongside your work directly in the museum, you have published a book called Animal Kingdom, A Natural History in a Hundred Objects. Did you always plan to write a book? Like, How did that come about? <laughs> um, I didn't plan to write a book. I've never, I've never considered writing a book, but I'm very, very pleased I have. Uh, it's opened a new part of my life, which is um, I love writing. No, I, I was at the Grant Museum of Zoology at the time, and I was writing Specimen of the Week blog posts. So it was, you know, 800 words on take a specimen and just, you know, either write about that specimen or what that specimen can tell us about something wider. And I, you know, I love doing that and that's, that's just part of the job. And then I, 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 an editor at the History Press publishes, contacted me and said, you know, really enjoy your blogs. Would you consider something similar to that, but an outdoor history in 100 objects, you know, the Neil McGregor History of the World in 100 Objects, which is in book. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So I did. And yeah, it's, and a lot of the book, yeah, the book talks about history of, of life, or what we can learn about the natural world by looking at naturalist museum objects. But it also talks about what we've just been talking about, how, you know, how museums present nature and how, you know, how museum collections came together, how specimens are prepared, how um, yeah, how kind of the science of museums work and what the biases are when we look at them. And have you now caught the book writing bug or are you going to stick to articles and, and shorter form? <laughs> no, I definitely have caught the bug. I just sent off my manuscript for a book about the way we talk about Australian mammals, so the importance of, mm. of how we talk about Australian mammals. That's coming out in HarperCollins and the University of Chicago Press in a year or so. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much written. That's exciting. And did COVID change anything for you in the writing process? Has it given you more time, less time to do that? I think it's affected different writers differently. But for me, it's very much more time. And I, I understand from my editors that I'm not the only one that have suddenly found that instead of commuting for an hour and a half every day, or in each direction, three hours a day, I've got that time in the morning and the evening to write instead. So I was quite productive. I was in doing it around my museum work my my, my nine, nine to five if you like is museum stuff but i've been doing yeah far more evenings far more weekends no other distractions to to research and, and write the books so that, that uh, tried to make the most of that awful situation and how has covid affected well i guess museums in general but more specifically the zoology museum in cambridge because obviously you've had to close your doors so how have you been adapting to that yeah we've been closed well we closed initially in march obviously when we had to in March 2020. And that's, you know, the, the effect on the museum sector as, as a whole has been obviously phenomenal, but we've, in a bad way, um, we haven't had visitors. So that means, you know, certainly a lot of museums that are entirely reliant on income, either that's through ticket sales or just even like car parking fees and cafe and shop income. They've, you know, it's been a tough time for museums as it has for pretty much every part of the sector of the uh, economy obviously museums you know not-for-profit organizations it's hard because there's very rarely significant reserves to to fall back on in in Cambridge you know we've we just had to pivot to well, what what is our what are we here for and what can we do to try and maintain those missions even if it means that we can't have people on site we obviously we opened in the between the lockdowns when we we're allowed to open but numbers were very limited so 
in answering that question, you know, our, our, as a university museum, our two biggies are you know, the public engagement work, getting people excited in the natural world through our collections. And the other side is supporting the research, the research community with our collections behind the scenes. For the, for the public engagement work, the public engagement team, my colleagues, Ross and Sarah, have, have done amazing things. They instantly set up a blog, uh, kind of just after a couple of weeks, started a new blog and moved all of our engagement online, run some really exciting online events of uh, Zoology Live over the summer. It was kind of came runner-up in the National Kids in Museums, Museum Friendly Museums at Home Awards, um, which is, yeah, absolutely wonderful. So we've, we've kind of pivoted there and, yeah. You, you, of course, involved in that event yourself, so thank I you. Was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and other things along the way. So, yeah, we're, we're just just trying to take our team, you know, we're, we were so lucky in that as a university museum, we've got, you know, we've got obviously fantastically well-knowledged people in our team, but we are surrounded by hundreds of, of colleagues, uh, academic students, who we can tap for the cutting-edge science that they've... That they that they develop here at the University of Cambridge, and and also the, our neighbours in the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. We've got ten of the world's biggest wildlife NGOs, conservation NGOs, in our building. Well, they're obviously not many of them in the building right now, but nonetheless, the, these are the people we work with just to make sure we've got really exciting content and creating events, creating blogs, creating stories. Um, so that we've we've kind of just pivoted online, as as many museums have and done so very successfully. And do you worry about the ability to get people back through the doors once the pandemic is under control? Or are you, do you think everyone's just raring to go? Well, you know, it's been, it is when we were open in the, in the lockdown, we were open with very limited capacity, pre-book only um, time slots and things like that. And just, you could hear the excitement in the galleries of people being back. So it's, it's very hard to find. It is what it is. So, you know, what can we do? The question is, we've got, we'll, we will have a very, kind of mathematical problem of there's going to come a time where we have to balance the level of marketing with the capacity so it's you know when we when when we are open we're not too worried because we can fill our slots we booked out every day every slot and um, more or less when we were in lockdown but as our capacity rises as restrictions reduce i'm sure people are going to be wary as they should be coming back anywhere but i think on the other hand people might be more inclined to stay local and yeah huge hugely important audience for us as people in Cambridge so hopefully you know whilst they won't be able to necessarily be able to travel as they normally did you know we've got wonderful things to offer here in Cambridge so yeah it's the, the big question is in you know we we the museum closed for five years massive redevelopment we opened in 2018 our target visitor count for when we reopened was 100,000 visitors. In our first year, we got over 150,000. In our second year, you know, the months before lockdown, we were even higher. You know, our monthly count was higher than the year before, which is really unusual. Normally, museums peak in their first year and then it's either at best plateaus and um, it normally goes down. Whereas we were on the rise and then obviously at the close. That's a shame. So we'll, we'll take some work to get back to that point, I think. But, yeah. you know, what else can we do? Well, exactly. So when everything starts to ease, then people need to be looking at the Zoology Museum website if they're based in Cambridge, see what slots you have and book ahead because it sounds like you're going to be busy. <laughs> I reckon. <laughs> so I don't want to keep you too long because I know you have lots of important things to go off and do, but I usually end with a quick fire round. Are you happy to go ahead with that? Do it, yeah. <laughs> I think because we've been talking about Australian mammals, I'm going to slightly adapt it. So I'm going to stick something appropriate in the middle there, but you'll see. What is the best piece of life advice you've been given? 
Um, um, I guess it's like, don't sweat the small stuff. It's, you know, I've, we all, everyone has stresses in their lives and some are more stressful than others and you know, go through a stressful time at work and that's, that's what we all have. And it, that's kind of recalibrated to the, how much I worry about things that really aren't that much of a big deal. Save your energy to things that are a big deal. What did you want to be when you were little? Well, I don't know. Um, I've always been interested in natural history, but I think when I was very little, I assumed I was going to be a teacher. In fact, my mum just found some piece of schoolwork from when I was six that said that. But I think I had no idea from all of my teens, all of my teens, what I wanted to do. Who inspires you? Um, well, a lot of people. I think really in natural history, you know, anyone who is just super excited about the stuff that they do. It's, you know, passionate people are oh, amazing. If you had to choose one favourite animal, what would it be? Platypus. Easy. Platypus. <laughs> no question. The evolutionary biologists dream. Just They've got you know, these the ancient characteristics of laying eggs and bent elbows. Plus, they're the only mammals that can detect electricity, or one of the only mammals that can detect electricity, one of the only venomous mammals. Um, they're amazing. Yeah. That was easier than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't assistant director of the Museum of Zoology, what would you like to be doing? I think have in my life thought a lot about just doing Australian ecology. That's no that's that's no less competitive in the museum sector. What do you love most about your job? Many things. There's not much I don't like about my job. Probably like specimens are incredible. Like in the specimen is itself a once upon a time living thing that you know we can tell its story somehow, but it's also this kind of accumulation of human endeavor to human history good and bad of how it's got to us and i think there's not a lot we can't not a lot of stories we can't tell with any given object well thank you so much jack for coming on the show i can't wait till we can be back in the zoology museum again and i'm sure lots of people feel exactly the same way thanks Ellie. it's been lovely that was jack ashby assistant director of the museum of zoology at the university of cambridge I said this at the start, but I do really mean it. If you don't follow Jack on Twitter, then you really should. His feed is a wonderful mashup of insightful comments on science news, great facts about Australian mammals, like I said, Wombat Wednesday is a fave, and, you know, fun things about the world of museums. On Twitter, he's at Jack D. Ashby. You can also find a link to Animal Kingdom and Natural History in 100 Objects in his bio. It's a really fun book, so I definitely recommend that you grab a copy. Thank you again to Jack for his time today. And that's all we've got time for on this show. But I'll be back in two weeks when I'll be interviewing Dr. Helen Scales, marine biologist, author and broadcaster. We're going to be talking about her career amongst the waves, both the ones in the sea and the ones on the radio. And I'll be finding out more about her new book, The Brilliant Abyss. If you've got any questions you'd like me to ask Helen or comments about today's show or you want to request a guest for a future episode or just say hi, then do get in touch with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Eleanor underscore Bladen, on Instagram at Ellie underscore Bladen, or you can email me at usandstem at gmail.com. Just remember that STEM has two M's in it. We don't want to leave those medics out. I do love getting your emails, so please do send them my way. In the meantime, have a great couple of weeks and stay curious. Mm-hmm.